Let's pray. Father God, you are an awesome God. You're great, mighty, holy. You deserve all worship and praise. And I pray that you bless this time now as we look at your word. Help us to look deeply into it, understanding that it is absolute truth, it's absolutely authoritative, and help us to understand and to apply what you have to teach us this morning. Praise things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so I got to uh, choose today's topic. Guest speakers don't always uh, get to do that. Sometimes they're assigned something, but I got to uh, choose my own topic. And I decided to do something from Acts. As a missionary, uh, Acts is a very, very uh, important and interesting uh, book for me. And uh, that's because it contains the history of how missions began. I just finished uh, a series at my own church, I'm going to be a Bible church on Ecclesiastes, and my next series will be in Acts. So this is kind of a, uh, not testing ground, but I get to get kind of a head start as I do these uh, messages here while I'm in the States. So obviously I'm here at IBC uh, this morning. I'm going to be talking about uh, Acts 11, 19 through 30, and that features the work of Barnabas at the church in Antioch. I will also be uh, at Redeemer Bible Fellowship in the Bay Area, and I decided to talk about Timothy uh, at that church uh, from Acts 16, 1 through 7, and I'll, after that, the week after that, I'll be at Redeemer's Grace Church in San Diego, and over there I'll be teaching uh, on Acts 15, 22 through 41, and uh, one of the prominent uh, characters, I guess, in that passage is Silas. And there's some very important lessons uh, to learn from these missionaries that we see in Acts. Uh, These missionaries are Barnabas, Timothy, and Silas. And to my shock and surprise, those names, Barnabas, Timothy, and Silas, spell the acrostic BTS. And I was thinking, even in my sermon preparation, I cannot get away from these guys, let alone when I'm looking at my Facebook page. Like... A couple weeks ago, I guess, I was looking at my Facebook, every post was about you guys, I don't know, like a third of you, I don't know, went to that concert and were posting pictures all over uh, the internet, Facebook, um, regarding that concert. My goodness, (laughs) can't get away from these guys. K-pop is not my cup of tea, but I guess it's good to see that even in time of coronavirus, you guys can uh, still have a good time. Now, getting into today's message. About a year and a half ago, uh, I watched a message uh, by Paul Washer from the uh, 2020 uh, Shepherds Conference that he gave regarding the Great Commission. And he said something that really struck me. He said that if he could, he would put an end to all the missiology departments and seminaries out there, and he would stick uh, that under ecclesiology in the seminary curriculum. And that really uh, impacted me. It, it uh, challenged the way I thought about missions and missiology. Now, I've run into uh, new ideas that people come up with all the time regarding missions. I'm on the mission field. I rub shoulders with a lot of missionaries, and they hear a lot of things. 
And there's all these missiological terms out there, like CPM, DDM, uh, obedience-based discipleship, house churches, micro-churches. And it can be pretty tiring keeping up with it all. Now, there's varying degrees of merit to those things, but there are dangers as well uh, to all the new mission strategies that are out there. I think missiologists would probably be be better off spending more time just studying uh, the scriptures than trying to think of new ways to do missions. And it kind of creates more work for us missionaries because now I have to study whatever new thing is out there, whatever's big in missions, so I know how to engage it. Now, I don't want to be ignorant, right? So I have to study these things. But honestly, from what I've seen, a lot of it is not just not helpful, but actually harmful to biblical missions. So I appreciated what Paul Washer uh, had to say about that. Uh, and in the end, uh, he understood that missions is about building the church, and that's it. So in other words, if you don't know what a church is, you don't know what missions is. So today I would look, uh, like to look at what is probably the best example of a missions-minded church in the Bible next to the church in Jerusalem, which is the church in Antioch. So let's read today's passage together. It's Acts uh, 11, verses 19 through 30. Acts 11, verses 19 through 30, and I'm reading from the ESV. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who were on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people who were, were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. Uh, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up, and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So in this passage, we will see three stages of growth in the church of Antioch. The first stage is how the church began, which is in verses 19 through 21. The second stage is how the church increased, which is in verses 22 through 26. And the third stage is how the church gave, which is in verses 27 through 30. Again, the three stages of growth are how the church began, 19 through 21, how the church increased, 22 through 26, and how the church gave. 27 through 30. And as we study these three stages of church growth, we will learn about the importance 
of properly teaching, hearing, and responding to God's word. So let's get into the first point. We see how the church began in verses 19 through 21. Now in studying Acts, you really need to get into the background to understand what's going on in the text. You need to look at geography, which means you need to look at maps, and you need to look at the history of places, which means you need good commentaries and Bible dictionaries. One issue, uh, one issue in missions that people talk about is the concept of reproducibility. And the, uh, the principle behind that is that if a native can't uh, do something that you can do, um, you shouldn't do it. And one way this might be applied is if you're a missionary and you have access to lots of uh, tools, a lot of resources for teaching the Bible, studying the Bible, and the native doesn't, uh, you should hold the native to that standard. You should just use the Bible, uh, assuming there is a Bible in their language, and not, uh, nothing else. When I first encountered that concept, it made logical sense. I mean, how can you expect someone to do something they don't have the resources for? But I thought about it more deeply, and I realized uh, that something really important is being sacrificed in that line of thinking. Like, how would you guys like it if none of the elders here had any additional resources besides their Bible to prepare their sermons? What kind of sermons would they give you? What would the content of anyone's sermon be like these days if all they had was the Bible? If we believe in the literal, historical, grammatical method of interpretation, and the history of the Bible is not our history, and the language of the Bible is not our language, the geography of the Bible is not familiar to us, and the language of the Bible, uh, and the resources, I'm sorry, uh, we need, if these things are not part of who we are, like culture, geography, language, history, we need to have those, we need to have resources to bridge those gaps of understanding. Otherwise, we would not understand God's word properly. So what we are sacrificing if we make reproducibility a core value in our mission strategy, what we're sacrificing is we're sacrificing truth. We're sacrificing understanding of the word. And if you're sacrificing that truth, you have nothing. So if your church is understanding the Bible is insufficient, if the people don't understand who God really is, who man really is, uh, who Christ is, what faith and repentance really are, or any other part of the gospel properly, you really don't have a church. You have a gathering of people, and you're not fulfilling the Great Commission. So what's the solution? We stretch what we think can be reproduced. We make understanding God's word a priority, and we get the natives up to speed however long that takes. It may take successive generations of missionaries to do that, but we shouldn't lower the standard for understanding truth. Now, I don't want to overstate the case, because if someone just has the Bible, someone can possibly understand the gospel. But if you think about it, people have always needed additional help uh, beyond just having the scriptures for themselves. People have always needed teachers. And God has given teachers of his word to his people. The Jews had the scriptures, but they needed prophets like Moses and scribes like Ezra to explain the text. When there weren't teachers from God, the Jews just ended up misinterpreting what was there. 
You can also look at the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 12, I mean, Acts 8. He was studying Isaiah 53, and God sent Philip the evangelist to him. Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? Do you remember what the Ethiopian said? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? He needed outside help, and now, in the present, we have teachers and their written works to aid us in our understanding of the Bible. So we need to make proper understanding of the truth of the Bible a priority and figure out how uh, we can best give that to others. Now, there's a lot more that can be said about that, but we need to get into our text. So how did the church in Antioch begin? It began by the preaching of God's word. In verse 19, we see that the word was preached to Jews. In verse 20, we see that the word was preached to Hellenists. And in verse 21, we see the preaching of the word, blessed by the Lord. Verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So the word was preached to Jews. We see a new phase of the Great Commission here in this verse, actually. As many commentators recognize, Acts 1.8 is probably the theme verse of the book of Acts. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, if you had a map, it would be easy to see the outward movement of this verse. Jerusalem is, of course, a city, and it was the epicenter of missions. And Judea is the province that Jerusalem was in. So the movement is outward like concentric circles caused by something falling in water. Samaria is the next province north of Judea. And then you have the ends of the earth, which is basically everything else. In Acts 11.19, you see God causing all things work for good, uh, to work for good for those who love him, as it says in Romans 8.28. Using the martyrdom of Stephen uh, and his subsequent persecution— which took place in Jerusalem in Acts 7 to cause his gospel to spread. Stephen was, of course, one of the prototype deacons uh, in Acts 6 that was chosen to help take care of the widows at the church in Jerusalem so that the apostles could focus on the word and prayer. Stephen was a very godly man, and after preaching a sermon that indicted the Jews for not listening to God's messengers, his Jewish audience stoned him to death. But instead of pouring water on fire to put out the spread of the gospel, it ended up being like pouring pouring oil on fire, causing the gospel to go forth in all directions from Jerusalem. Indeed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, as the church father Tertullian said. Now, depending on which historian you're reading, Stephen's stoning probably took place sometime between 33 and 36 AD. It's probably on the earlier end on that range, of that range, I think. But by the time we get to Acts 11, it's probably around 43 AD, since the first event in Acts 12, the next chapter, is James's martyrdom, which historians place around 44 AD. And it has to be at least a year before that, because we saw in 11's uh, saw in Acts 11.26 that Barnabas and Saul had been teaching in Antioch for a year. 
So over the course of about seven to ten years, the gospel spread to Phoenicia, a region north of Samaria along the Mediterranean coast, to Cyprus, which is a pretty big island in the Mediterranean, uh, off the coast of Phoenicia and Syria, which is Syria being north of Phoenicia, and then to Antioch, which is the capital of the province of Syria. Now let's talk about Antioch for a little bit. Since uh, out of the seven locations mentioned in today's passage, you know, the seven locations being Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, Cyrene, Tarsus, Jerusalem, and Judea, Antioch is the most significant one for this passage. Now first, please don't confuse this Antioch. This is Antioch of Syria with uh, the other Antioch of the Bible, which is Antioch of Pisidia, which is in Asia Minor. This Antioch, Antioch of Syria, is far more significant. No disrespect to Antioch of Pisidia. Uh, You can't tell just from reading uh, what's in the Bible, but uh, Antioch of Syria was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman Empire with only Rome and Alexandria, which was the capital of Egypt at the time, ahead of Antioch in population. So we're talking about a really, really significant city. If we draw an analogy between the uh, Roman Empire and California, Antioch would be like San Jose with, you know, in the Silicon Valley, right? Uh, which ranks third in population between L.A. or behind L.A. and San Diego. And on a more trivial note, uh, Antioch is also where Cleopatra and Mark Antony, not to be confused with Jennifer Lopez's ex, um, that's where Cleopatra and Mark Antony had their wedding ceremony in Antioch of Syria. So it was significant, of enough, uh, significant enough of a city for that event. Now Antioch was situated on the east bank of a major river called the Orontes River and was about 16.5 miles, 16.5 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea, and about 300 miles uh, north of Jerusalem. So it's close to the bend uh, where the western side of the Middle East uh, meets Asia Minor. Asia Minor kind of sticks out like that, and then you have this part where Israel is down here. Well, it's at that bend. That's where uh, Antioch of Syria was. Now, Antioch was located at a major connecting point between trade routes to and from Egypt, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, Mesopotamia, and later Armenia and India. One Bible dictionary said that because of its strategic position, Antioch was a busy cosmopolitan center of trade, religious ferment, and high levels of intellectual and political life. So please don't think it was some small town uh, out in the boonies just because you maybe never heard of it or don't know that much about it. It was a significant city. But unfortunately, along with the positives of a, uh, being a major city, Antioch also had its negatives, including all the moral laxity that you'd expect in a big city. However, as the great commentator F.F. Bruce said, Antioch was a cosmopolitan city where Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, rubbed shoulders, where Mediterranean civilization met Syrian desert. Racial and religious differences, which loomed so large in Judea, seemed much less important here. So Antioch was not only strategic economically, but also spiritually, as all big cities are. 
And so it shouldn't surprise us that Antioch was as significant as it was for the spread of the gospel, especially to Gentiles. Now, there's a lot more that can be said about Antioch, but I hope now you have a greater appreciation for what that city is. Now, uh, at the end of verse 19, it says that those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose after Stephen's martyrdom, um, that those people were speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now, we don't know anything about those people who were doing the speaking, except that they were in Jerusalem during Stephen's martyrdom, that they eventually went to places as far as Phoenicia, Cyrus, uh, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they were speaking the word to no one but Jews. Speaking the word is an interesting phrase. The meaning of the verb speaking in Greek is exactly that. It means talking, to utter words. And most of the time, this word is used just to refer to talking to someone uh, personally in small groups uh, of people. Sometimes it's translated as declare. Uh, Jesus uh, Jesus uses it this way in John 8, 26, where he says to the crowds, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. So it's rare, but it can uh, be used to describe something more like preaching. But uh, since these people are unnamed, they're not these famous apostles or evangelists going around different places, and the majority of the uses of the Greek word refers to just regular talking, regular speaking, it's probably more likely that they're just telling people that, who they knew, who they ran into, in casual conversation about the word as opposed to formal preaching. The word here is certainly a reference to the gospel, since there's a contrast with the activities of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene in verse 20, the emphasis being on the difference in the target audience. That's the difference here, not the activity that they're doing. And the outcome of their preaching, or more accurately, evangelizing, uh, that word that that is used there uh, for preaching in verse 20, uh, it's more about evangelizing. Uh, the outcome of their preaching about the Lord Jesus was, as it says in verse 21, that a large number believed. So the word in verse 19 must also be a reference to the sharing of the gospel. Now the biggest question regarding verse 19 is probably, why did they only share with Jews? And there are several possible reasons for this. First, it would have been natural for Jews who relocated from Jerusalem to share only with other Jews, because that's who they would have been in contact with after their move. Perhaps that happened inside a synagogue. Second, it could have been a logical mission strategy uh, when evangelizing. Uh, the people who are most similar to you are the lowest hanging fruit, so to speak. However, most likely it was probably because they understood that it was God's plan for the gospel to be offered to the Jew first and then to the Greek as it says in Romans 1, 16, 2, 9, and 10. And Jesus also demonstrated this principle in Matthew 10, 5 through 6, where he said to the 12, as he sent them out, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now please understand that it was never to the exclusion of the Gentiles, but to the priority of the Jews. The scattered Jews in Acts 11:19 were still on the side of Jewish priority historically. 
And as we shall see in the next verse, the offer of salvation will officially be open to the Gentiles as well. So that space between verses 19 and 20 is essentially the cusp between those two eras in gospel history. In verse 19, we saw the word preached to Jews. Now let's see the word preached to Hellenists in verse 20. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a contrast between verse 19 and 20. And the contrast is clearly shown with the first word in verse 20. But the sum of them uh, refers to some of the scattered Jews mentioned in verse 19. Amongst them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Now, this is the second time Cyprus is mentioned in this passage, the first time being in verse 19. Cyprus is the closest large island in the Mediterranean Sea uh, in the Middle East, or, or it's in the Mediterranean Sea next to the Middle East. Uh, I don't have time to get into the same level of detail with Cyprus as I did with Antioch, but I do want to bring up uh, one important fact about Cyprus, uh, something that's important to the context of this passage. And the fact is this, that Barnabas... Uh, who's the central figure in this passage, is from Cyprus. And we get that from Acts 4.36. And this could be one of the reasons why he was chosen by the church in Jerusalem uh, to be sent to Antioch. There were people from his homeland who were preaching the gospel there in Antioch. And it was possible, it could be possible, uh, that he could have even known some of them. Cyprus is about 110 miles long and 50 miles wide. It's not small, uh, but the people within the Jewish community there could have known each other. Now, Cyrene, on the other hand, uh, is in northern Africa, uh, further west than Egypt, pretty far. The most famous person from, uh, in the Bible from Cyrene is Simon of Cyrene, who was forced to physically help Jesus bear his cross. Now, we can't uh, be certain about the spirituality of Simon, if he became a genuine believer or not. Well, he was forced, right, to carry, uh, help carry uh, Jesus' cross. He didn't willingly do it out of faith, at least at that time. Uh, so we don't know about Simon's spirituality. But there is also a Lucius of Cyrene uh, that was a teacher at the Church of Antioch, according to Acts 13.1. Now, I don't think that these men uh, in verse 20 came directly from Cyprus and Cyrene to Antioch. I think these men uh, were originally from Cyprus and Cyrene and then went to Jerusalem and then left Jerusalem because of the persecution and ended up in Antioch. In the Bible, no matter uh, how many countries uh, you've lived in, you're still known for being from your hometown. For example, Paul the Apostle, though he was brought up in Jerusalem, uh, according to Acts 22.3, he said that in his testimony. He still referred to uh, a man of Tarsus in Acts 9.11. And also, I don't think that you can take the grammar any other way in verse 20. The sum of them uh, has to point back to verse 19, which talks about people who scattered because of the persecution related to Stephen's martyrdom, uh, which took place in Jerusalem. Now, Luke, who's the author of Acts, says that these men spoke to Hellenists also. The idea is, in contrast to the group in verse 19 who spoke only to Jews, the men in verse 20 spoke to both Jews and Hellenists. Let's talk about the word Hellenists for a little bit. Now, there's a textual issue here. 
Some manuscripts have uh, the Greek word that's translated as Hellenists in them, and some have the word that's translated as Greeks. And there are reliable manuscripts on both sides of the issue. That's probably why the main translations are split. ESV, uh, New King James have Hellenists, and the New American Standard, the NIV, and the Net Bible have Greek. Now, my personal opinion is if the NESB and the NIV agree on something, it's probably right. Now, uh, I'm just kidding, but sort of. But, um, however, in the end, the issue really isn't that big uh, because the basic meaning of the word Hellenist is one who uses the Greek language. It can refer to Greek-speaking Jews only, uh, which might change the meaning of the verse, but you can easily tell from the context that Luke's point is not that only Hebrew-speaking Jews were evangelized and now Greek-speaking Jews were being evangelized, but that Greeks, namely Gentiles, were now being evangelized. The greater context, chapter 10 and the first half of 11, talks about the expansion of the gospel ministry to Gentiles like Cornelius, who is Italian. So this was the point uh, oh, this chapter 10, chapter 11, uh, was, also the point, uh, was also the point of the dream that uh, Gentiles were now offered salvation, um, that the dream that God gave to Peter regarding unclean foods, uh, becoming clean, you know, that arise, kill, and eat dream that maybe many of the men here in the congregation want to have. But there would be hardly a contrast if the only difference was that the gospel ministry expanded from Hebrew-speaking Jews to Greek-speaking Jews. So for a number of reasons, Greek is probably what Luke means here. The Lord Jesus, namely the gospel, was being preached to the Gentiles here in verse 20. The gospel, of course, includes the concept that Jesus is Lord. Paul said in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Luke said earlier in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we know from the previous verse, Acts 4.11, that he's talking about Jesus. So we've been talking about how the church in Antioch began. We've seen that the word was preached to both Jews and Hellenists. Now in verse 21, we see that the word was blessed by the Lord. Verse 21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And here we see good old Dr. Luke using figures of speech that involve body parts here. He uses the phrase hand of the Lord here in verse 21, ears of the church in verse 22, and the hand of Barnabas and Saul in verse 30, which we would not be surprised by since Luke is a physician. Now, God obviously is spirit. He doesn't have literal hands. Uh, this phrase refers to his power. Over and over again, the Bible, when the Bible talks about God's hand, it would usually say it, call it, describe it as his mighty hand, his right, mighty right hand or something like that, referring to his power. And because of God's power, a great number who believe turned to the Lord. Now, we don't know how many were in that great number, but if the standard of growth for the church is Jerusalem, it could be in the thousands, actually. In Jerusalem, 3,000 were added 
on the day of Pentecost, according to Acts 2.41. And several months later, it became 5,000 men, or another 5,000 men. Or I guess the church at Jerusalem became 5,000 men, uh, which could be 20,000 people or something like that. Now, again, we don't know the exact number uh, in Antioch, but it was big enough to not bother counting. So indeed, the word uh, of the Lord does not return to him void, does not return to him empty, but accomplishes what he wants it to do, according, uh, or as Isaiah 55.11 says. So that's how the church began in Antioch. It began by the preaching or speaking of the word, both to Jews and Gentiles, and God's blessing upon that preaching. Next, we shall see how the church increased in verses 22 through 26. The first named character is introduced in this section. It's none other than Barnabas. Now, I love Barnabas. Barnabas is one of the guys I identify most with in the Bible. I'm not a, uh, an alpha male like Paul was. I highly respect Paul, and I like Paul. We need guys like Paul but my personality is a lot different from his. Now, Luke first introduced Barnabas back in Acts 4, 36, and 37, which says, Thus Joseph, that was his real name, uh, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this tells us that Barnabas was an encourager and a giver. When Paul uh, got converted and went to Jerusalem to join the disciples, they were all scared and skeptical of him because he had previously persecuted the church, right? However, Barnabas uh, took him in, took Paul in, and vouched for him. There was also that incident where Paul and Barnabas parted ways because Barnabas wanted to take his cousin, John Mark, Uh, on one of their missionary journeys. But Paul said no because John Mark had previously bailed on them uh, on a missions trip. So Barnabas took John Mark with him to Cyprus. Paul and Silas went on uh, their own trip. And it seems like Barnabas worked with him because John Mark was a different person by the end of the Bible. In Colossians 4, 10, and 11, Paul calls John, John Mark a fellow worker who has been a comfort to him. And 2 Timothy 4.11 says, uh, this is Paul talking, said that John Mark is very useful to me for ministry. Also, John Mark is the most likely candidate to be the author of the Gospel of Mark. So there is quite a turnaround in his life, partly due to Barnabas' encouragement. I'm sure that Paul's rejection of John Mark left quite a scar on him, and that if it wasn't for Barnabas' encouragement, his life could have went in a different direction. So that's Barnabas. And we, uh, what we're going to see in this section is different facets of Barnabas' activities which help the church grow. We're going to see, one, Barnabas ascending in verse 22. We're going to see Barnabas' exhortation in verses 23 and the first half of 24. We're going to see Barnabas's fruit in verse 24, or the second half of verse 24. We're going to see Barnabas's co-laborer in verses 25 and the first half of 26. And Barnabas is in Saul's legacy in the end of verse 26. And I'll briefly address each of these subpoints. 
first one being Barnabas's sending. So the church in Jerusalem, uh, where all the apostles are, hears about what's going on in Antioch, and they need to check it out, and they decide to send Barnabas. We must not understand the uh, mis- we must not underestimate uh, the importance of the sending. Barnabas was an apostle. He's called an apostle along with Paul in Acts 14, 14. Now, they're not apostles in the same way the 12 are, but they were sent out like the 12 were. And that's the basic meaning of the Greek word apostolos. It refers to someone who is sent out. And a version of that word is used in Acts eleven twenty two to describe the sending out of Barnabas. The word apostle is probably the closest word in the Bible to the word missionary. However, strictly speaking, the word missionary doesn't appear in the Bible, and this has caused uh, a lot of confusion on the missionary field, on the missions field, as to what a missionary is. There's a lot of people out there who consider themselves missionaries who have not been sent out. I remember meeting one guy in Osaka who called himself a missionary, but when I asked him about his sending church, he told me that there wasn't one, that he was just... uh, he just wanted to be in Japan to share the gospel uh, with Japanese people. He actually was taking a vacation, a long vacation from his work to do that. Now, I appreciate his desire, but he actually might do more harm than good if he's just a rogue, unapproved, self-proclaimed missionary who's going to teach things that are unbiblical. But Barnabas was sent out, meaning that he had the stamp of approval of the church that sent him. Now, it might not be a sin to send yourself, but it's definitely wise to go through a vetting process with your church. So the church at Jerusalem didn't just send anyone, but someone who was highly qualified, as we shall see in more detail in a little bit. So that's Barnabas' sending. Next, we see Barnabas' exhortation in verses 23 and the first part of 24. After Barnabas came and checked things out, he was able to confirm that this was indeed a work of God. Now, we tend to be skeptical of churches that have no affiliation with our own church, but God's bigger than that. God is doing things and working in people and churches that we don't know anything about. And once Barnabas saw that the grace of God was working there, he was glad. He rejoiced in what was going on, and then he exhorted them which is true to his name, right? He's the son of encouragement. Son of, uh, that word, encouragement, parakaleo, uh, is the same word that's translated here as exhort. Parakaleo literally means the call to one side. And it carries the idea of exhorting, encouraging, and comforting. And that's what Barnabas did. He encouraged these new believers at Antioch to essentially persevere in their faith, which would make sense because of the persecution that was going on. They needed that. And in verse 24a, uh, Luke elaborates on the kind of man who Barnabas was. He says Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So the church of Jerusalem didn't just send anybody who wanted to go or send someone who was expendable. They sent a man of the highest spiritual quality, which is why, at least on the human side, there are such good results. Which leads us to the next point. We saw Barnabas' sending his exhortation. Next, we shall see Barnabas's fruit at the end of verse 24. The second half of 24 simply says, and a great many, people who were, uh, great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas had a fruitful ministry. There were already people there, 
sharing the gospel, and new people were getting saved. And Barnabas, the missionary apostle, was helping them grow through his exhortation. And now you have a maturing church where not one missionary is doing all the evangelizing, but the whole church is doing this. And God blessed that by adding a great many people to this church. And this created the need for additional help, which leads us to the next subpoint, Barnabas's co-laborer in verses 25 and the first part of 26. So there is Barnabas's sending exhortation. Now we have his co-laborer. Barnabas needed someone who could help teach the growing church of Antioch, and Paul, who was still known as Saul back then, came to mind. Paul was, of course, a highly trained teacher, having studied the scriptures uh, under the great Rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem. And now he's had some experience preaching the true gospel after getting saved on the road to Damascus. The last time Luke mentioned Paul, also known as Saul, in the book of Acts was back in chapter 9. Acts 9.28-30 tells us that Paul was preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, but was sent to his homeland of Tarsus because Hellenists were seeking to kill him. In other words, the believers who were there with Paul thought that he would be safer back in his homeland, and apparently Paul never left. So for the past three years or so, Paul was preaching the gospel in Tarsus. Now, that was convenient for Barnabas because his boy Paul uh, was only about 130 miles away. He didn't have to go look for help in Jerusalem, which was 300 miles away, over twice the distance, right? Now, it was an eight-day journey over land or possibly a two-day journey by sea, but that's still a whole lot better than having to move back to Jerusalem to find help. (coughs) Excuse me. So after Barnabas finds Paul in Tarsus, he brings him to Antioch, and together they teach the church there for a year. Again, the importance of teaching and missions is emphasized. And one side note uh, on the use of the word church here. Now, there's a lot of confusion in the mission field regarding what a church is. Please note that the gathering of believers in Antioch is called a church here in verse 26. Now, people have uh, different views on what a church is. But my current view, and you can have a different view than me, is that a church is a gathering of believers who meet regularly. They've committed to meeting regularly. But I want to qualify that by saying that churches need to be constantly moving towards maturity. Churches are supposed to be dynamic. They're living organisms, right? Now, some people define church as a gathering of believers that are at a point where they have functioning elders and deacons and practice the ordinances and church discipline. And there's more to that. But I think that's a good rough definition of a mature church. However, I don't think that there are elders here yet at the church at Antioch. They're a new church. And Paul and Barnabas are the ones who are doing the teaching. But I'm sure that Barnabas and Paul were moving them towards becoming a mature church. Now, someone asked me a while back, uh, when is a church plant not a church plant anymore? And I thought to myself, hey, that's a really good question. Uh, Because I'd been using the term church plant just like everybody else does uh, without thinking about it that much. Oh, it's a church we just planted. But then I realized that the term church plant is not in the Bible. Not that it's a bad term, but it's not found in the Bible. 
In the Bible, just have the word church. Uh, there are churches that just began, and then churches that have been around longer. But they are, all seem to be simply called churches in the Bible. And it hit me that the issue is not what stage the church is in at that moment, but whatever stage that is, they need to be moving towards greater maturity. And if you create a new category for church, you might run into some problems. For example, I've seen in the mission field justification for women in elder-like positions at churches because they say that their gathering is technically not a church yet. And it hit me that if you create this new category, church plant, not quite church, and then stop applying what, uh, what a church is supposed to be doing, oh, Oh, that guy's in sin. Oh, we're not a church plant yet. We're not gonna, we can't discipline them. You create a lot of problems uh, by creating new categories uh, for what a church uh, is supposed to be. So I think it is best to view these gatherings as churches and tell them that all of them need to be moving towards maturity, what they should be. So you either have a church or you don't. And if you have a church, all the rules and principles regarding church in the New Testament apply. Otherwise, you'll have a lot of confusion and chaos on how you run your gathering. So that's my two cents in uh, the definition of a church. So we've seen Barnabas' sending, exhortation, fruit, and co-laborer. The fifth uh, facet or element of Barnabas' ministry is his and Saul's legacy. The second half of verse 26 says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Barnabas and Saul had such an impact on the church at Antioch that they developed a reputation. This is an, uh, an indication of the success of the Gentile missions in Antioch. Now, there are a few things to note about the historical use of the term Christian. This is not what the followers of Christ called themselves during this time. They actually preferred to be called, uh, or called themselves, believers, disciples, and brothers, terms like that. It was outsiders, actually, that were calling them Christians. It was perhaps because people often identified a particular group by their leader, uh, as uh, that was often done with political groups, like uh, the Herodians of the Bible are such example. The term Christian um, could have also been somewhat of a derogatory term since in the other two appearances of the term Christian in the Bible, the usage is negative. In Acts twenty six twenty eight, Agrippa says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to become or to be a Christian? So it seems like it's something that Agrippa doesn't really want, but Paul might be doing a good job of trying to convince him. And in 1 Peter four sixteen, Peter says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian you know, this term Christian, let him uh, not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So here it seems that society looked down on these people who were labeled Christians. Believers didn't want to be called by that designation. But in the end, these disciples were so well known, and it was so clear that they were different from Jews, as they should be, that society needed to give them a different name before they were just grouped along with the Jews. But these guys were different. And those outside called them Christians because they followed Christ. And it was largely due to Barnabas's and Paul's clear teaching of God's word uh, to them that they developed this identity. They were growing and maturing as a church.
So now we've seen how the church began and how the church increased. Last, let's take a quick look at how the church gave in verses 27 through 30. This section can be divided into two parts. Why the church gave in verses 27 and 28 and what they gave in verses 29 and 30. And what we see in this giving, this generosity of the church in Antioch, is their maturity and solidarity with the universal church. They had moved from being a church that needed help to a church that gave help. Let's consider why they gave, or really what created the opportunity for giving. Verses 27 and 28 tells us that prophets, one of them is named Agabus, uh, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch to tell them, about a famine that is coming, and the implication from that response, uh, from their response in verses 29 and 30, is that the church in Jerusalem will be in need of financial help. And by the way, the use of the words uh, came down from Jerusalem, even though Antioch is technically north of Jerusalem, is probably reflective of Jerusalem's um, high elevation. So no matter what direction you're you're going, if you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up to it, whether it's coming from north, east, south, west. You're going up to Jerusalem. And if you're at Jerusalem, you're coming down from it, no matter what direction you're going. So they came down Jerusalem to Antioch, which is up north. And the words these days uh, might be an indication of how important that particular time was. It was a time that the gospel began to officially spread to the Gentiles. These days were that time. So here we have uh, another instance of God's word in action in today's passage. In the first section, verses 19 through 21, scattered believers were speaking the word and preaching the Lord Jesus. In the second section, verses 22 through 26, Barnabas and Paul were teaching the word. Now here, prophets foretold by the Spirit that there would be a famine, which is another example of speaking God's word. I don't have... Time to get into why we have prophets anymore. You can ask uh, your elders about that. Uh, But I do want to point out that there is historical evidence that this famine that was prophesied actually did occur in 46 AD. Also, the Claudius that's mentioned in verse 28 was the Roman emperor uh, there at the time from 41 to 54 AD. The description here uh, that there would be a great famine all over the world is probably hyperbolic. There's no evidence for a literal worldwide famine at that time. However, the expression can refer to just a particular region as well. So that's the reason or occasion for the church in Antioch's uh, giving, why they gave. So through prophets, they learned about this, this need at the church in Judea. Now let's take a look at what they gave in the last two verses of this section, verses 29 and 30. What they gave is indicated by the word send. Verse 29 says that they sent relief. And in verse 30, it says that they sent it by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So incidentally, they needed to send people as well. Now let's briefly consider uh, the relief that was sent. Now what's going on in this verse is really beautiful. These disciples, people who are committed to learning about and becoming like Christ, they determined, they made a decision to give what they could. And each, every single one of them, gave according to their ability. And now some of them probably were pretty well off, considering that Antioch was a wealthy city. But either way, the church of Antioch gave the best it could. 
Now, it might not have been enough uh, to meet all the needs of the church at Jerusalem, since the church in Antioch was still starting off, while the church in Jerusalem had been around for quite a bit longer. Uh, But whatever they gave would have certainly helped. The word translated relief usually means service. It's actually the word uh, diakonia, from where we get the word deacon. But it can refer to monetary aid as well. Uh, You look that up in Bible dictionaries. And also, the fact that this relief was carried by the hand of Barnabas and Paul seems to indicate that, the mon- that money was sent as opposed to something bigger like food or some other form of aid. And this financial aid was sent to the brothers uh, living in Judea. Though most of the people at the church in Antioch probably have never met the people who are at the church in Jerusalem, they're all brothers and sisters, of course. They all belong to God's family, God's family, and they loved that church and wanted to help them. So that's uh, the relief they gave. Let's look at the people who were sent, Barnabas and Saul. Now this subtly indicates the maturity of the church in Antioch. They gave up the two guys who taught them for a year. They gave up a couple of the best teachers of God's word that were out there. The church of Antioch had reached a stage where they, get, where they could get along with the two, without the two apostles. And Acts 13.1 seems to indicate that this was the case. Acts 13.1 says, Now there, uh, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, uh, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So a couple of chapters later, In addition to Barnabas and Saul, three new guys have teaching roles at the church, Simeon, Lucius, and Menaean. Barnabas and Saul would eventually be sent off on a missionary journey by the church of Antioch, but the church would be in the capable hands of these three remaining teachers who are no doubt trained up by Barnabas and Saul. And notice, uh, this is a side note, the elders mentioned in uh, verse 30, Uh, These elders are in Jerusalem, but these guys should not be confused with the apostles. They're separate men. Uh, There are different verses that talk about how there's apostles and elders uh, in Jerusalem. So today, we saw three stages of of growth of the church at Antioch. We saw how the church began in verses 19 through 21. We saw how the church increased in verses 22 through 26 and how the church gave in verses 27 through 30. Now, how do we apply this? Now, first, let me talk about the wrong way to apply this. Now, more than the epistles, let's say, we need to be careful about how we apply the narratives in the Bible. I'm sure uh, many of you are familiar with the, pr- uh, the principle of prescription versus description, right? Sometimes a particular verse or passage in the Bible merely describes an event, uh, but we're not supposed to imitate it. Uh, and there are many passages in the Bible that, that are just descriptions and not commands. And then, of course, there are prescriptions, which is the opposite. There are many parts of the Bible, especially in the epistles, uh, as well as Jesus' teachings in the Gospels, uh, that we are supposed to directly obey. Acts is primarily narrative. So we need to be careful about how we apply this. But we uh, we also need to remember that even though a passage is narrative, it doesn't mean that there's no application. No matter what passage of the Bible we're dealing with, there is application. The question is how should we apply it? We can also 
uh, we can always learn something about God and his principles from a passage of Scripture. Otherwise, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 would not be true. And I think you guys are familiar with that verse, the verse that says, all scriptures God breathed, or breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's talk about three misapplications of this passage. First, we shouldn't expect the same kind of growth in numbers in our churches. God is sovereign over the numbers. Only he can change hearts. So please don't measure a church's faithfulness by its size. Measure it by how well it applies what the Bible says. Second, we shouldn't base the length of time missionaries spend at a church in the field on this passage. Like in this passage, Paul and Barnabas were there for a year. Now there's a mission strategy out there uh, that emphasizes rapid multiplication of churches. And strategically, there is some merit to it. Like, who doesn't want, what Christian doesn't want rapid multiplication of churches? And there is some merit to that. I think the best thing about that line of thinking is that you want to prevent missionaries from holding on to a church too long before passing it on to the natives. And that's a good principle. However, the danger is, if you hand it over too soon, meaning that the late leadership is not theologically or spiritually mature, that church is going to end up being a hot mess, and I've seen that happen. And third, we should not expect prophecies from the Lord to guide us anymore. We have the complete word of God, and we need to study it and apply its principles instead of looking for mystical forms of communication from God. So how should we apply this passage? Let me give you three applications real quick. First, there's the importance of teaching and missions. Today's passage was absolutely clear that the main activity that missionaries should focus on is teaching God's word. That was not description there. That was illustration of prescription. They were simply following the great commission by making disciples through their teaching. But yet I see people try all sorts of different things because to them, or in their experience, teaching the Bible doesn't work. Well, my question for them would be, what, how, and how much are you actually teaching them? I think that's the, the problem. That's the issue. Because when I see, let's say, a child that's not growing properly, one of the first things I would check is his or her diet. Is he eating? Is he or she eating properly? So my suspicion with the lack of growth in maturity and in numbers in the churches, in Japan at least, is that the congregations are spiritually malnourished. Now, there's a lot more I can say about that, but I need to move on. Okay, second, there's also the importance of sending the right people in missions. Paul and Barnabas were the best of the best. They would be elders at their churches if they weren't going off in mission trips all the time or getting thrown in prison, right? We don't need more bodies in the mission field, contrary to popular belief. We need more qualified workers who know, apply, and teach the Bible. And third, there's the importance of solidarity of the church. Churches need other churches. There should be fellowship and and serving, as we saw in this passage, between churches. Now, something that really surprised me about the church in Japan is how isolated a lot of the churches are. I thought maybe since there are so few churches, uh, 
uh, in Japan that they would uh, interact with each other a lot more. But I, didn't, I actually don't see a whole lot of that. And there was also the whole group mentality. I said, okay, all the Christians, they should have this group mentality thing and want to stick together. But I really, really haven't seen that. And there are various reasons, and maybe you can ask me about that in the next hour, uh, for that. But I found that not to be the case. So uh, there's a lot more uh, that I can say about that, and maybe I'll say that in the next hour. But it is my hope and prayer that churches both here and in the States, uh, here, both here in the States and around the world, uh, would be more like the church in Antioch in how they began, increased, and gave. And I'm thankful that IBC